0: So last week, we looked at the reality that it means to be a people of praise that regardless of our circumstances or situations, that we're praising God, that we're worshiping God. It means for us to be worshipers, and that doesn't mean that we combine our worship to just an hour and a half on Sunday morning, gathered together in a room together, but it it literally is our life, that that is our life's endeavor to worship God Almighty in every aspect of our life, not compartmentalizing Christ and our relationship with Him but allowing that to be the center point and the focus of every aspect of our life and everything it is that we do. The second part of what it means to to be the church when we go out of here is not only to be a people of praise, but to be a people of prayer. That we would understand that God has given us one of the greatest gifts that he has bestowed upon his people, and that is direct access to him. And that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have direct access to him, so therefore we ought to be a people of prayer. One of probably the most neglected weapons in all of Christendom is the prayers of God's people. Uh, oftentimes we understand the importance of prayer, often under, uh, we, we, we understand that the need for prayer, uh, but very rarely do we resort to it as the very first act of dealing with any kind of struggle, any kind of situation, any kind of circumstance. Usually, it's when we don't have anything else to do. We feel like we don't have, we've exhausted all means and all measures, and we think to ourselves, well, what, what do I do? I don't have anything that I can do. And so, therefore, we fall to our knees crying out to God. How much pain and sorrow and grief would be avoided if instead of the last resort being prayer, it'd be the very first? Here at community, we want to communicate the idea of prayer over programs. In some churches, you, you you can program things to death. If there's a struggle going on in an individual's life, then, then let's just create some program for it and we'll get a bunch of people to volunteer to help execute that program. We'll call a bunch of people to come up here on a night of the week, and, and, and that way we can we can address that through a program. Those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But it is wrong if that's our our, our first resort. If individuals are having marriage struggles, our first resort should not be, well, let's put a program in place to address that issue. No, the first resort ought to be, we need to go to God Almighty in prayer and ask him to move in and through the circumstance and the situation. What would it look like if prayer wasn't our last resort, but it was our very first I pray that as we open God's word together today, that when we get ready to walk out of here to the phrase of, now that we've had church, let's go be the church, that we would have a greater understanding and a greater desire to be people of prayer. Philippians 4, 6-7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, to me, that seems impossible. Don't be anxious about anything. That seems impossible. I don't know about you, but but I've got anxiety. I can worry typically about things that will never come to fruition. But I can spend a lot of time and energy worrying about those things. But God's word wouldn't call us to something that wouldn't be possible. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, be in prayer. In other words, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. We tend to flip that most of the time, isn't it? We're anxious and we worry about everything, and we hardly pray about anything. And what God's word is calling us to is that we need to be a people of prayer because it's powerful and effective. That's what God's word says that the prayers of the righteous availeth much, that they are powerful and that they are effective. And ultimately, our prayer, our prayer life can result in greater reassurance. Anybody need more reassurance about God's love for them? I know I do. There are times I question that. And there are times that, that I wonder, God, do you really love me? Have I not messed up uh, too many times for you? Am I, am, am I now cast aside? Uh, do, do you have any love for me? Uh, do you need reassurance of God's love for you today? Well, listen, a, a strong prayer life will give you greater reassurance of God's love for you. A strong prayer life results in, in greater ability to see God. Does it feel like God is distant? There's a lot of pain and suffering and turmoil going on in the life of many individuals that are sitting in this room right now. Loss of loved ones, loved ones dealing with ailments and sickness, wayward children, financial strains, health strains. All kinds of things are weighing in on the hearts and the lives of the individuals that are sitting in this room and sat in this room for service and all around us. And sometimes it's hard to see God. Do, do, Do you want the greater ability to see God at work in your life? A stronger prayer life will afford you that. A stronger prayer life will result in a greater conformity to Christ Jesus in your life. See, ultimately, prayer is not so much about changing our circumstances as it is changing our character. We spend so much time praying for God to change our circumstances when in reality, most of those circumstances, God wants us in because he's trying to do a work in our life to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And we're praying to actually get out of the very thing that God wants us in so that we'll look more like Jesus. A strong prayer life will help you with that. It will also help you with greater displays of faith because prayer it truly is powerful and effective, and so today I want us to spend time and really focusing in on something that, sadly to say, we neglect far too often. You you want to clear out a, a church, call a prayer meeting. Call call a prayer. Hey, we're, we're going to have asserted, focused time of prayer, and we're going to meet Monday night at 7 o'clock, and I, I, I'm telling you, I, I've just seen it in church after church. A lot of people don't show up for that. Because I think in many ways we think, well, I, I can just pray by, my, pray, pray by myself. Well, you can worship by yourself too, but God tells us not to forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Corporate prayer, there is something powerful with, with, within that. And so I really want us to look at this idea of being a people of prayer. You remember in the book of Acts when, when Peter was in jail for, for sharing the gospel? And an angel comes and fetches Peter out out of jail, and he ends up at his friend's house, and he knocks on the door. You know, he's on the run, and the lady opens the door and sees him and then shuts the door and goes to, like, open and let me in, right? Listen, an angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that went and fetched the angel. We find ourselves in prisons, we find ourselves in bondage, we find ourselves in storms and circumstances and situations where the walls feel like they are closing in, and we need God to work in a miraculous way. Listen to me. Just as in that situation the angel came and fetched Peter out of prison, we need to understand it was his prayer that went and fetched the angel. Can't be our last resort. It must be our first resort. Robert Murray McCheney says this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What our prayer life looks like before God Almighty, when when, when we are down on our knees and crying out to God, that is a greater indicator of who we are. That is a greater indicator of our relationship with God. That is a greater indicator of, of who we see ourselves in Christ Jesus. That's a greater indicator of our character and our spiritual maturity than anything else. You could you could come to every Bible study that there possibly is, but I will know more about you when you are on your knees before God Almighty crying out to God and asking for the power of God to move in certain circumstances and situations, uh, what, what it looks like for you to cry out to God and what you're asking of Him. That gives me a greater insight into who you are, and it gives you a greater insight into who I am than anything else. I'm a great... Uh, uh, a uh, lover of uh, military history, and often think of church sometimes in, in militaristic terms, and uh, it's just something that I, I, I enjoy uh, my time in, in in the military. Just uh, I look at that sometimes. Some it's a good t- good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes because I can look at, at God more as the commander. Uh, than I can as, as my heavenly father who loves me sometimes. So I can, I can view God in, in, in that way sometimes. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that, that, that's bad. I think you need a, a healthy uh, a mixture of both. I tend to sometimes lean more on the commander. We got to go. We got we to gotta charge. Advance the gospel. And sometimes I lose sight of God as my heavenly father and his, his love. But there's this term within the military that's called a tactical pause. And a, a tactical pause means right in the middle of uh, the battle, right in the middle uh, uh, of the war, you, you stop, you take a timeout, you strategically do it. It's not because you're forced to, but you strategically build that into the plan to stop, to pause, to reassess, to reevaluate uh, the contingencies that need to be put in place. Are they ready to be put in place? What does this look like? And so in the middle of a battle going around you, there are individuals that need to stop, take that tactical pause, reassess, and reevaluate what is going on on all around them. Prayer is a tactical pause. The spiritual war is raging all around us. But when we stop and we pause and we reorient ourselves to see what is going on around us, what resources that we have available to us, make sure the supply line is in in effect, make sure that that we have everybody in position that needs to be in position, we see where things might not be going right, we see where things are going good, and we've taken an opportunity to assess those, and we make sure that we get the right resources to the right places. Ultimately, that's what prayer is. In the spiritual war that we find ourselves in, it's a tactical pause. And Jesus would take tactical pauses all throughout his earthly ministry. Luke 5, 14 through 16 says this. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus is waging spiritual war against the devil. They're starting to bring individuals to him. But what does he do? but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would take a tactical pause and say, I see all this stuff that is going on around me, but what I need to do is I need to withdraw for a second. I need to reassess. I need to reevaluate. I need to spend time with my heavenly father, and he would spend time in prayer. And ultimately, prayer is a tactical pause in the midst of spiritual warfare. And it is one of the greatest weapons that God has afforded his people. Now, during one of these times, uh, one of the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Luke 11, 1, uh, Jesus comes back from one of these tactical pauses, and the deci- one of the disciples asked Jesus, could you teach us how to pray? Now, it's been pointed out, and I think rightfully so, that they don't ask, can you teach us how to preach? They, they don't ask, can you teach us how to organize and administrate? They don't, they don't ask, hey, can you, can you teach us how to, how, how to heal the sick and cast out demons? They say, no, how do you pray? Because we see that all of these other things are an extension of that. The high priority that he would put on prayer, the disciples noticed to the point that said, would you teach us how to pray? Because prayer is one of the most important things that we can do. And so if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Verses 5 through 15, Matthew 6, 5 through 15, in a message that I've entitled, Aligning Our Heart with God's. And truly, isn't that what prayer is? It's the act of aligning our hearts with God. It's aligning our will with God. It's bringing everything back into focus. And making sure that God is above all in every aspect of our life. It is a recognition of our insufficiency and his sufficiency. It's a recognition of our mortality and his immortality. It's a recognition of his, our inferiority and his superiority. And ultimately, that's exactly what prayer is. It's aligning our heart with God's. Read with me in Matthew 6, 5-15. God's word says, And when you pray... Will your father forgive your trespasses? And may God bless the reading of his word. Now, this is what is known as the Lord's Prayer, but it's more aptly to be called the Disciples' Prayer because the disciples are asking, how should we pray? Now, notice they don't ask, what should we pray? This isn't an incantation. This isn't something that we just repeat word for word and the power is in the words. No, the power is in the one that we are reaching out to. Power is the one that that we are looking towards. And so we 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 see that this is really not so much the Lord's Prayer as it is the disciples' prayer. And these aren't exact words to be prayed, although there's something powerful about praying God's word back to him. There's something very powerful about the Lord's prayer. There's something very powerful about taking God's word. And as you're reading it, writing out prayers for your children uh, around that verse or writing out prayers to God Almighty for yourself, for your loved ones or those that are around you by using God's words uh, uh, from his word in your prayers. These aren't exact words to be prayed, but in the disciples' prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus shows us is that there are priorities that should shape our prayer life, that within, within the Lord's Prayer, we see that he has drawn attention not to exact words to be prayed, but priorities within our prayer life that need to be central to each and every one of our prayers. And you'll see that in the Lord's Prayer, just like in the Ten Commandments, the first half is God-focused and the second half is man-focused. We, we see that in verses 9 through 10 that the focus is on God. In verses 12 and 11 through 13, the, the focus is on man. He goes from a negative to a positive. So in verses 5 through 8, he says, don't pray like this. And then in verses 9 through 15, he says, you need to pray like this. We also see there's a, there's a threefold aspect to this prayer. It begins with outward focus, then it, it, or excuse me, an upward focus then an outward focus, and then an inward focus. So we start our prayers focused in on God, then we become others-oriented and the needs of others around us before we start focusing in on our own needs as well. Oftentimes that's reverse, isn't it? If we even get to anybody else, or if we ever take the opportunity to really focus in on who God is, oftentimes our prayer life looks like us rushing into the grocery store with a grocery list to hurry up and get what we need as quick as we possibly can so we could get out. But Jesus says that shouldn't be what your prayer life looks like. your prayer life shouldn't be a grocery list that you're trying to cross off as many as you possibly can so you can hurry up and get down the road there would be times in my life where I would before I came to to Christ not speak uh as gently or as kindly or as respectfully uh to my father as I should have and i would I would get the the the, the look from my dad uh I'm not going to look at him right now. He's in the back right there. I may may get to look. But there there would be times where I would do that, and he would say to me, Son, you know who you're talking to? Because I had lost focus of who it was that I was addressing and who it was I was talking to. Oftentimes, we come into the presence of God, and we just come in in this hurried attempt, and we treat him as nothing more than a spiritual vending machine, and we start pressing in numbers, and we start saying all these things that that we want, all these things that that we want to have, and we fail to understand who it is we're talking to. We're talking to the creator of the universe. We're talking to the one who loved us so much he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. We shouldn't just come in with this list and say, here you go, now make it happen. We come in in complete adoration and complete reverence and complete awe of the reality that the very creator of the universe has given us direct access to him anytime we want. Call up the White House right now and try to get an appointment with the president. Sure, some of you would have some things to say. You think you would have access to the president today? Absolutely not. Pi wouldn't have access to the president next week. Pi wouldn't have access to the president a month. You may never gain access to the president, but you know what? You have direct access to the creator of the universe at any moment you desire. He welcomes us into his presence. There's an out, upward focus, an outward focus, and an inward focus. And so what Jesus does is he teaches priorities within our prayer life that if we will implement into our times of prayer, we will see God do great and mighty things for that is who he is and what he does. So Jesus says, pray then like this. You want to know how to pray? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the first thing that Jesus teaches is Jesus teaches the disciples to pray with a proper perspective. That we would understand who it is that we're talking to. He tells us to pray with a proper respect, uh, pr- perspective. He, he tells us to, that, he, uh, that we are to address God as our Father. Th- that is powerful. Uh, for us that live on this side of the cross, that, that seems that, that, yeah, that goes without saying. We understand God as God the Father. But, but in the days of Jesus, this was radical. For him to refer to God as his father. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as the father 14 times. In the entire Old Testament, he's only referred to his father 14 times. And each of those times that he is referred to as the father, it is always as the father of the nation, never as the father of an individual. Nowhere in the Old Testament is he referred to as the father by an individual. But yet, 60 times in the gospel, Jesus uses this exact word to refer to to God Almighty. He refers to him as the Father. It's been suggested by some scholars that that is the key uh, demarcation between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the reference of God as Father. What separates the Old Testament and the New Testament is God's people refer to him in a personal, intimate way as father. You don't see that in the Old Testament, but through faith in Christ Jesus, we can now address God Almighty as our father. But it's not a technical term, father, like this is my father. It's a, it's a relational word that is used, Abba. It's this, it's this idea of, 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 of daddy. That a child is running up, Daddy, Daddy, not, hey, Father. It's this personal, intimate connection that we see. And, and Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray with the proper perspective that he sees you as one of, his ch- one of his children. That he is our Heavenly Father. Galatians 4, 6 through 7 speaks of this exact thing. And because you are sons through having placed faith in Christ Jesus, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. J.I. Packer would say it this way, that that Father is the Christian name for God. That that is the Christian term for God, and it is a direct reflection of our relationship with God Almighty, because the Spirit is at work in our hearts when we understand Him to be our Heavenly Father that that loves us and cares for us and will provide for us and protect us and that, that, that He is for us, then we start to see a radical shift in the way that we live out our faith. Romans 8, 14 through 17, the the same thing Paul would write to the church at Rome about the Spirit of God at work in our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. But it says that uh, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallow me, just holy is your name. We want to make holy your name. That's a powerful prayer. When we go to the Lord in prayer, that ought to be our desire. We want to make much of you, God want to make much of your name. It's not that my name would be known. It's that your name would be known. Holy is your name. That I want to live in such a way that I I hallow your name. That I live in such an obedience to you. That I live in such a a relationship uh, with such a reverence for you. That I hallow your name through all it is that I say and all it is that I do. Alexander the Great was in a foreign country during the campaign that he pretty much conquered all of the known world and during the military conflict there would be days that would be our military campaign there would be days that would be set aside that were days of judgment And soldiers would be brought before him. And it would be like a military tribunal for these individuals that had uh, broken some type of law within the military. And they'd be brought before him. And then he would uh, dispense with any kind of punishment that that he felt like that individual needed to to, to receive. And so some commanding officers bring this young man, a young boy, uh, who had fled in the face of the enemy. Very serious charge. And it brings him before Alexander the Great, and he's standing before Alexander the Great. They read the charges to him, and Alexander the Great asks this young man, he says, what is your name? And the young man, in a very hushed tone, said, Alexander. He said, what did you say? He said, my name's Alexander. He said, speak up, boy, what is your name? Said, my name is Alexander. He got up, he took this individual, threw him down onto the ground, and while that man was laying on the ground, he got into his face and he told him, Son, you either change your name or you change your ways. As a follower of Jesus Christ, when we go to the Lord in prayer, what we need to be focused in on is not so much the changing of our circumstances, but the changing of our character. And Lord, there are, there are ways within my life that I know do not hallow your name. God, I, I, I pray that I will hallow your name. What a powerful prayer to pray before you start every day. Lord, I want to hallow your name. I want to live in such a way. I want to speak in such a way to my, my children, to my, my spouse, to my coworkers, to my friends, my family. I want, to, I want to bring glory to your name. Would you help me in bringing glory to your name? We would have a proper perspective of God as our father, but also understand just exactly who he is. Now, look what results when we do that. When we are prayerfully setting our heart on our relationship with God as father and reverence for the name of God, this results in greater reassurance. That God reassures us when we understand that that He is our Heavenly Father that loves us, and then we understand in reverence of who He is and all of His power, all of His majesty, and all of His might, it will produce in your life a greater reassurance that what it is you are uh, asking for, God will make sure that you have when you need it. That's exactly what we read in Luke 11 11 through 13. Luke eleven eleven through 13, God's word tells us, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, if we won't respond to our children's plea for, for help, by giving them evil in return, how much so our perfect heavenly father and what he will provide for us when we need something. So there's a reassurance. When I understand him to be my heavenly father that loves me, when I understand that he is the creator of all things, that he is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, then I can have a reassurance that God will uh, uh, give me exactly what I need when I need it. And one of the things that I ultimately need is I need the presence of God. And that's what we see in verse 10. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's presence, to pray for the very presence of God. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is a twofold prayer. This is a prayer about the second coming of Christ, but also the seeking after the righteousness of God here in our day-to-day life. Your kingdom come. That is a prayer that, that, that you will uh, uh, bring in the inauguration of your kingdom at your second coming. That, that's what Scripture says. The, the, the kingdom of God will be brought down to this earth at the second coming of Christ Jesus. So when we pray your kingdom come, in very real essence, we're praying for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who will not come as a suffering serpent or as a Galilean peasant. He will come as a conquering king when he returns. And he will usher in his kingdom. So it very much is a longing for and a praying for the second coming of Christ. Because to pray that, that's a prayer for the longing of justice. It's praying for, 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 for a longing of restoration. And a praying with a longing for peace and for righteousness to take place here on this earth. But shouldn't we be thankful for God's patience? I don't know about you, I'm thankful for God's patience. Because I know when that that day comes, everybody that's outside of Christ Jesus will be separated from him for all of eternity. You know, I'm so thankful that the second coming of Christ wasn't May 15th of 2010. When ten. When'd you give your life to Jesus Christ? Aren't you thankful for the patience of God that he didn't come a day sooner? I wasn't born again until May 16th of 2010. What if he had come before that? I'd been eternally separated from God for all of eternity. So we pray, God, your kingdom come. But that ought to be a sobering prayer for each and every one of us because there are friends, family members, co-workers, loved ones, neighbors, that if that were to happen this very day, they would be separated from God for all of eternity. And so the question is, in light of the fact that one day that is going to happen, how serious are we about sharing the gospel with them? So even that prayer... Your kingdom come is a prayer with the acknowledgement that there is a day that the door of the ark closes and all those that are outside of the ark will face all of the judgment of God Almighty poured out upon them. So therefore, there's an urgency even within that prayer of I'm longing for that justice and that peace and that restoration to come with Christ Jesus in his return. There also ought to be a sobering reality that we ought to live with an urgency that that day will come and we don't know when it is. So we must make the most of each and every day that we have here on this earth. But it's also the reality of the presence of God in our lives right now. It's not just a future day, but the presence of God right now at work within his church, at work within our lives. Because ultimately, the presence of of Jesus is the kingdom of God. Matthew four seventeen, Jesus would begin his earthly ministry, and he would, he would tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was talking about, I'm here, so therefore the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Luke 17, 21, he would say, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, referring to the fact that he was in their midst. Luke 4, 43, Jesus starts his earthly ministry by saying this, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. His purpose was the preaching of the kingdom of God. So therefore, as followers of Jesus Christ, what should we be prayerfully seeking after in our prayers to be the purpose of each and every day of our life? To advance the kingdom of God. To preach the kingdom of God. If our king, if that was his purpose here on this earth, was to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and die for your sins and for my sins, then that should be the purpose our lives are oriented around as well. But you say he died on the cross, was buried and resurrected, and so the church has a new mission, right? Well, Acts 1-3 says this. After his resurrection, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. After he was resurrected, he spent 40 days here on the earth, appearing to many individuals, talking to his disciples. You know what he was talking about? The kingdom of God. So when we're talking to God Almighty, what should be at the very heart of what we're talking about? The kingdom of God. And that our lives and our prayer life will be so radically focused in on the kingdom of God. It's the coming kingdom at his second return. But it's also the advancement of the kingdom by his people setting their hearts upon the purpose of the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. The making of disciples. Matthew 6.33 says this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that grocery list we tend to give to God. He says, listen. You would do well to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then I will add all the things that you actually need to your life when you need it. Now, we have trouble with that because we pray for what we want. And if God doesn't give us what we want, we think either God didn't answer our prayer or that God doesn't love us or that that, that we're doing something wrong. Listen, God gives you what you need, not what you want because he's a loving and a good father. If it were up to my kids... All they'd want to eat is candy all day long. My little four-year-old, he wakes up wanting dessert. That's, I mean, just just wake up wanting dessert. Like, you can't have dessert, you gotta have some nutritional. Here's a chocolate chip waffle. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he wakes up, he wants candy. My seven-year-old, my, my, my eight-year-old, they, they just want all they want is candy. Now now listen, if I was a loving, loving father. Should I just give them all of that? No. One, I got to deal with them later and, you know, throughout the day. But two, I know the cavities that that will cause. I know the malnutrition that that will cause. I know the stomach aches that that will cause. Oftentimes we rush into the presence of our Heavenly Father and all we say is we want some candy. I want, I want, I want, I want, but he's a good and a loving God, and he knows, listen, if I give you that, I know the spiritual cavities that that will cause in your life. I know the spiritual stomach aches that that will cause in your life. I know the spiritual malnutrition that that will cause in your life, so here's some broccoli. And we're upset, but that's what we need. Listen, God gives us what we need, not what we want. In the words of the great theologian Garth Brooks, some of, the greatest thing, some of the greatest things God ever did for us were unanswered prayers, right? Praise the Lord for those unanswered prayers. Because a lot of times we're praying for stuff we don't even, we don't even know that we should be praying. We're praying for stuff that we think we want, but we, we, we really don't need. I'll share this with you. I've shared this, this story before, and I haven't, shared it, I haven't shared it in a while, but... When I first came to faith in, in Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord gave me uh, a prison ministry. And so before I preached in any churches or anything like that, God, God gave me an opportunity to go into various prisons. And so I would go and I would share my testimony and I would, I would preach God's word to, to the, the, the inmates there at various prisons. And that led for me to have an opportunity to go to the uh, juvenile detention center in Tulsa used to be located right off Gilcrease Museum Road. But I, I would go over there every other Sunday, and, and, and I would preach. And I, I remember that there was this one young man. His name was Nassan. And Nassan would always cause all kinds of trouble within the worship service. So he'd be very disrupted. He'd do whatever he could to kind of disrupt the service. And it became a little bit of an issue and a problem. I, w- I would be trying to preach, and he's causing a problem. He's distracting the people around him, or he's causing a scene, and we'd have to stop, and they'd have to escort him back to his cell, and you know, these various things. Young man, I mean, it was a juvenile detention center. And I remember driving uh, to the juvenile detention center one Sunday morning, and on my drive, I was praying that Nissan wouldn't come to service that day. Now, I say that to my great shame. I literally prayed that a young man that I know needed Jesus wouldn't come to the worship service of Jesus. And I prayed it with all sincerity. And in my heart... I'm praying, Lord, because he's distracting people. There may be people that, that want to place their faith and trust in you, that want to hear the message, and he's distracting everybody. Don't, don't let him come into the worship service. Won't you know in the Psalms in the worship service, there he is, right there in the back row like he always is, sitting there with his arms folded across his chest, during the message, he's messing with the individuals that are around him. He's distracting individuals. Time of invitation comes. God was just doing an amazing work in and through this, the ministry at that time. and Quite a few individuals came, place their faith in Christ Jesus. Afterwards, we'd, have, we'd all have lunch together. So they went to go wash their hands, get ready for lunch except for Nassan. Nassan was sitting there. The one that I had prayed wouldn't be in service that day. He's sitting there. He's got tears rolling down his cheeks. And I go over to Nassan and I I, I say, Nassan, what's wrong? And he looked at me and the only words he could get out with trembling lips. A little 14-year-old kid. Just a trembling lip. Tears rolling down his, his face. All he could get out is, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. He just said it over and, over and over again. I just prayed that he wouldn't be in that service. I said, what do you mean you can't do it anymore? He He, he said... In essence, I surrender. I talked about waving the white flag in that, that message. He said, I wave the white flag. I surrender. And right there, me and this young man prayed to receive Jesus Christ. See, God gives us what we need, not what we always want. Because sometimes we pray really stupid prayers. Like, Lord, keep this young kid away from the worship service. The very thing that that God was going to use for him to come to faith in Christ Jesus that day, I was praying that he wouldn't even show up. Praise the Lord that he gives us what we need, not what we want. You see, prayerfully setting our heart on the second coming And the seeking of his kingdom and his righteousness results in a greater ability to see God. When we we long for the second coming but we're actively seeking the advancement of the kingdom in our lives today. We have a greater ability to see God in our lives. Matthew 5.8 speaks of this reality as well. Matthew 5.8 says blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So pure heart to place your faith in Christ Jesus. You receive that that pure heart. And. You're longing for his return, but you're also setting your, your heart to the advancement of God's kingdom. He says you'll, you'll see God at work. Oftentimes we, we feel like we, we don't see God at work in our lives. But oftentimes it's because we don't have eternity in our perspective. And we're not actively helping to make disciples and advance the kingdom of God out of that pure heart that God has given us. Thirdly, thirdly we see in verses 11 and 12. We see that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's provision, to pray that God would provide exactly what is needed. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That it is right for us to pray for our daily needs, our daily necessities, that God desires for us to acknowledge those things to him. He knows before we even pray what we need, but he wants our hearts aligned with his. He, He wants us to acknowledge our insufficiency in his sufficiency and that we are to pray that he is to forgive our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. And so this is a picture of contentment. It's a picture of confession as well. Philippians four eleven through 13, God's word says this, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, listen, my, my prayer life isn't necessarily revolving around circumstances and situations being changed. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. It's understanding that regardless if things are good or things are bad, I've got Jesus and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's probably the verse that is most taken out of context out of all verses in Scripture. I can do all things through the Lord who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We put it on our eye black, you know, our sports figures put it on their eye black. It's in sporting events. We love to claim uh, Philippians four thirteen. The problem is somebody on the other side, uh, on the other team, is claiming the same thing. So now we got it's a spiritual contest. Evidently, who loves Jesus more. Jump in a helicopter. never flown a helicopter in your life. Just jump in a helicopter and start to take off and just yell out, I can do all things through the Lord who strengthens me. We'll see how that turns out for you. You'll be seeing Jesus a lot sooner than you anticipated. Right? We take this verse and we try to claim it for things that, that are just, that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not what this passage of Scripture is talking about. It's talking about the fact that I can be content in my circumstances and situations because I'm content in who my Lord says I am. We've lost the art of contentment. Our pantries are filled with more food. Our refrigerators filled with more food. Our closets are filled with more clothes. We're going to throw out a bunch of that food that's in the pantry. A bunch of the stuff in the refrigerator is going to spoil. Clothes, We, we, we got enough clothes that, that we could clothe an army. We've lost the art of being content. To say, listen, God, you provide everything that I need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We would be well served to find the contentment that comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's daily reliance upon God. It's not worrying about tomorrow. Jesus would say, don't worry about tomorrow. That's got enough problems for itself. Don't go borrowing trouble. Tomorrow's got enough problems of its own. We pray for, for, for daily provision, and God provides it. But also it's confession, and forgive us our debts. First John 1.9 speaks of this reality that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we acknowledge where we have faltered in our prayer life, that we acknowledge where it is that we have failed. Lord, forgive me for that. But trusting that our Heavenly Father He is faithful, that if we confess, He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That He doesn't turn us away, doesn't hold us at arm's length, that, that that we come into His presence and He welcomes us. But it says that we are to forgive also our debtors, the way that Christ has forgiven us, that we're to be a people of forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that you're to be a doormat. I think there's some people that think in Christianity it means to be a doormat. And a lot of times, individuals that try to take advantage of us in the Christian faith, they try to bring it back to, well, you're supposed to just love and you're supposed to love, yeah, but I'm not a doormat to let you just walk all over me. In fact, it can be a very unloving thing to let you just walk all over me. Could be unloving for myself, could be unloving to my children, could be unloving to my friends. It's unloving to you because you're conducting yourself in a way that God doesn't desire for you to conduct yourself in. We're not called to be door masks, but we are called to be door openers. We're always called to open the door of grace and mercy for those individuals that have harmed us and hurt us or harmed us and hurt our children to come in and to find the forgiveness and the mercy that God has given to us. If God hasn't yet closed the door of forgiveness and mercy to them, then who are you to close it? If he says they can still find forgiveness and mercy for everything it is that they have done if they will come and repent and place their faith in me then who are we to hold bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts when the one who has forgiven us says the door is still open to them Amen. You're not called to be a doormat but you're called to be a door opener There are some individuals in your life that you've closed that door to you've locked it shut you've put as much stuff in the way that you possibly can and you said not for them and God said, no, 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 no. I forgave you of all of your sins. And the door of grace and mercy is open to them just as it was open to you. So who are you to close that door and not extend forgiveness to those individuals that have harmed you and said things to you and maligned you? And I'm not saying the pain's not real. I'm not saying the hurt's not real, of those things that they have done. What I am saying, though, is that God has forgiven you much. and So therefore, just like the good servant who has been forgiven much, we in turn go and forgive those who are indebted to us as well. When we do this, when we live a life of contentment and confession, prayerfully said in our heart on being content in our situation while confessing our sins, this results in greater conformity to Christ. Luke eleven five 5-6 says this, Jesus, as an extension of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, says, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now, let me put this in a little bit more uh, context of our own lives. It's three in the morning and somebody calls your phone. I don't know about you, I ain't answering it. It's three in the morning. I ain't answering that. In fact, you probably think, what in the world? People got nerve calling at 3 in the morning. They call a second time. This time you may look at caller ID and see who it is. If it's my mama, I'm answering, okay? If it's anybody but my mama, I can get to you in the morning. They call a third time. Okay, I got to see what's going on. Obviously, they're calling about something. I got to see what's going on, so I answer the phone. That's the picture here. Individuals coming over to their friend's house because they got some some friends that came over and they're hungry and it's hospitable in this culture to make sure you have some food for those individuals. They don't have any food, so they go to their next door neighbor and they start knocking on the door and saying, hey, I I need to give them something. Now, what God is trying to get a picture of is not only the persistence of prayer, but it's also the uh, understanding that we are insufficient in our Look at what he says. I have nothing to set before them. Individuals sometimes come to us. They're looking for something. I can't tell you how many individuals I've I've said and counseled uh, in regards to marriage or or children or whatever the case may be. And, and, And listen, I don't have anything in of myself. I don't have anything to set before them. I don't, I don't have anything. I don't have any words of wisdom. I don't, I don't, it's just a man-made philosophy. If I Listen, I'm just as messed up, probably more messed up than that person. I don't have nothing to set before them, but I know the one who does. Lord, I don't have anything to set before them. I don't know. But I know the living bread. I know the bread of life. I know the, 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 the word that I can give them. And so I go to God and I set before them his truth so that they can rely and understand his truth. Our prayer life is that way. Lord, I can't go through this day. I can't make it through this day. I, I don't know. I don't know how to make it. I don't have anything to set before myself or anybody else. Lord, I need you to help me. Our prayer life is just an acknowledgment. Of our great need. Luke eleven, eleven through thirteen says this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, and if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You notice what he gives them? He gives them the Holy Spirit. Because Your greatest need is not a change to your circumstance or your situation or circumstance. Your greatest need is a change to your character. How are you going to be able to rely upon God, not in your own power and your own strength, but in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit at work in you? How are you going to be able to extend forgiveness to those individuals that have harmed you, not in your own power, not in your own strength, but through the Holy Spirit who empowers you to do so? How are you going to be able to go about your, your day? How are you going to be able to go about living your life of faith? It's not going to be by your own power, your own strength, but it's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, Jesus teaches his disciples in verse 13 to pray for God's protection. He says, forgive uh, 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 forgive us our debts as, as we have uh, also forgiving our debtors in verse 13 it says and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil now that's like a strange thing to, to pray is it not lead us not into temptation as if god would lead us into temptation that's always kind of been strange thing for me in the lord's prayer to pray lord lead me not into temptation well god doesn't tempt anybody he can't be tempted and he doesn't tempt anybody so why are we praying lord don't lead me into temptation well, that word temptation has a double meaning. It can mean temptation in the sense that we think being enticed is something, but it also can mean testing of. In every situation that you find yourself in, the devil's going to try to tempt you, and God is testing you. Will you draw closer to God? Or will you run away from God? The enemy will always entice you to run away from God. And in the same situation, for instance, we talked about broken appliances. It seems like the devil, that 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 punk is always attacking appliances or vehicles or whatever, doesn't he? Boy, right when you think you got some things, you're getting ahead a little bit. You got, you got some things worked out. D- dishwasher is out. Boy, that's it. That's a test. The the enemy will get you to try to curse God in that. God doesn't love me. God's not. But it's also a test to say, God, you know what? The sink still works. I can wash dishes by hand. I know that seems like that can't happen. That that doesn't happen. We can't do that anymore. But you can wash your dishes by hand. You can do it. I'm telling you. I've I've heard about it. (laughs) I've heard people do it. The same thing that can be... Used as a temptation by the devil is a test by God. Lead us not into temptation. A man named Herschel York once said this. The worst place to be standing is at the corner of desire and opportunity. The worst place for us to be standing is at the corner of desire and opportunity. When you have the desire and the opportunity to do something and your flesh is acting upon that, buddy, you better watch out. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, what we're saying is, there are things that I have a fleshly desire for. Please, God, don't give me an opportunity to act upon them. And gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, there are times where there are opportunities that will present themselves. Please don't give me the desire to act upon them. And and Heavenly Father, uh, uh, please don't, don't, don't give me the desire to act on opportunities. Sometimes our flesh desires something. God, please don't give me an opportunity to act upon it. And sometimes there are opportunities that present themselves. Heavenly Father, please don't give me the desire for those. The most dangerous place you can stand is on the corner of desire and opportunity. And may we pray that our desire is for God. And every opportunity that we have is to bring glory to him. Lastly, prayerfully setting our heart on the direction of God and his deliverance results in greater displays of faith. And when we walk the way that God has called us to walk. When we rest in his deliverance, it gives us greater opportunities to display our faith.